Welcome home. We are WNST, AM 1570, Towson, Baltimore, and Baltimore Positive. We're going to get back out on the road with our Maryland Crab Cake Tour. All of our Crab Cake Row and charity and community pieces are now platformed at Baltimore Positive. Um, pick one of them. Do something nice before baseball season starts. It's all brought to you by our friends at the Maryland Lottery. Ten times the cash. I'll be giving these away. We're going to be doing some Fridays at Fadley's before Orioles games now that we're under new ownership, which is a beautiful thing around here. Also our friends at Window Nation, as well as Jiffy Lube Multicare, putting us out on the road. I've waited a long time. Uh, to do this piece and there's a whole background in all of this and y'all know my love of rock and roll and I can let my hair out and we'll do all that later on in the segment um, but this is a band I've loved forever and I've never interviewed this person although he did give me a bottle of Screech from Newfoundland when I was about 17 years old as a music critic uh, down at the Baltimore Arena uh, I was at the Towson Center the night that the MTV cameras rolled in uh, Saxon had become one of my favorite bands because I had seen a band called Rush at the Capitol Center and there's a band called Triumph and when we were playing Pac-Man and video games at the arcade, Magic Power would come on and hold on and lay it on the line. And it kind of all came back to me about six months ago. I was jamming around and I saw the documentary and I loved the band and I only caught the back end and I had to tape the front end and watched it all. And then I thought, you know, Rick Abbott used to come here all the time to Ram's Head and play. And he's written a book and maybe, maybe I could fish out to his Canadian publicist and he would spend some time with me. Rick Abbott, it is a pleasure to have you on to promote Lay It on the Line, um, a backstage pass to Rockstar Adventure Conflict and Triumph. I think you had all of that. Um, congratulations on ringing the bell and surviving and doing all these things. I've waited a long time. I've talked to your bandmates, but it's a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you, Nestor. It's nice to get to chat with you, too. And I, I want to compliment you on that beautiful orange shirt. And your Orioles team, they they uh, they finally sort of rounded into shape. Took a while, but you guys waited patiently. And now you got a real contender there. And that's my kind of ball team. I really do like that baseball team. You know what, man? I put baseball as the last thing we're going to discuss. And, given my, and you've already brought it up. Uh, let's start with this, because I'll get to the Towson Center and all this stuff that I have around here and fun toys and and certainly your book and the deep thoughts in your book about your band and your life and your family. But um, the baseball thing in Canada, I, I mean, I've had Getty on many times over many years, haven't had him on recently since the book came out. I was up at Massey Hall when he and Alex Lifeson did their uh, their thing just before the holidays. I I'm fascinated by the Canadian love of baseball, especially with older folks like yourself that when you were a kid, you didn't have the Blue Jays, right? Like, so the Blue Jays sort of came along, but I don't know how a 12 year old kid in Etobicoke or, uh, you know, Mississauga would be a baseball fan in 1969 or 70. Can you explain that to me on behalf of all your Canadian rock stars who love baseball? Yeah. Well, I can tell you that the Canadians have a, we actually have the, the, the longest running uh, baseball diamond in North America is in London, Ontario here in Canada. And we had baseball even before your sort of American uh, development of the game. Uh, it was, a, it was a real baseball diamond. And um, I have a funny story about that. Well, it's not funny, but it's a, my son played on that field. Uh, and the, at the time it was the Labatt's Memorial, something, you know, when, when he played on it, but um, he played on it several times in Canadian championships and stuff. And, uh, the last time that he played there, my brother had passed away and I had some of his ashes. And he had asked me, my brother, uh, can you get make sure that my ashes get put on uh, in Memorial Stadium in, in Baltimore? Because he was a huge Cal Ripken fan. Right. And I and I went, 
I don't think I can swing that. But I was able to get my son to put some of his ashes just out behind second base on the oldest baseball diamond in, in all of North America. So uh, th that's the kind of roots. The Did brother have. ask you to spread his ashes on 33rd Street at Memorial Stadium where I spent my child? That's true. And you didn't do it? I, I couldn't get, how can you get in there? Like, how I, can I get I, in to I, do it? Rick, I can make this happen. I had the leader of the Y, John Hoeing, on last week, talking about community, talking about 33rd Street. That that land there, as my last name's Aparicio, so I came to this world and this country. My cousin came as a shortstop and left right. my father here. And I'm the last one here. Right. So I had right John Howie on. on last week and the Y, the you know, former YMCA, the Y took the land there 20 years ago. And I admitted to John, I could not drive down 33rd street for about 15 years of my life because it upset me so much uh, that it was gone. And yeah. uh, I can make this happen for you, brother. So uh, we're all friends here. You know, this is okay. I, I can make this Canadian U.S. baseball thing. And, you know, Cal's going to be an owner of the baseball team now. And I you still know. love baseball. All you guys do. I mean, when yeah. I'm in Canada, you love hockey. But boy, if the Blue Jays ever won a World Series again. Right. Yeah, I think the, the, the Canadian thing was that, um, y you know, obviously hockey was six months of the year. But then what do you do the, the next six? And like, <laughs> you know. So it was like most athletes, you played ball in the summer and you played hockey in the winter. You know, that's how it worked. Well, so. you've, you've done you've got a lot of baseball pictures in here. And I I didn't know of your affinity of baseball. I mean, Getty's kind of out there with it and other Canadian people are out there with it. But um, I didn't know that you were you were looking for a ball game when you were on tour with the band 40 years. Oh, ago. man. Like when I was a, when I was about eight or nine years old. Uh, we used to start to have pitchers. It was softball pitching, but we used to have pitchers and catchers in spring training kind of in the basement of my school in March. And so every year around this time, I get this itchy kind of, yeah, spring training. Uh, pitchers and catchers have already reported. Oh, you know, like it's it's a part of who I am. My dad played ball. My brother played ball. You know, um, yeah, it was a thing like we, we had a, a men's slow pitch team and we played in a league and my dad coached third and my brother and I played together and yeah, I mean, I just, you know, it, it's always been a, 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 a part of who I am and, and just as much as music almost, you know, uh, I guess if I'd had more chops as, as a baseball player, I might've ended up doing that. But uh, yeah, one thing led to another. I ended up in the music business. So there you go. All right. Well, we got uh, Rick Emmett here from triumph. The book is lay it on the line. So I guess I come at this pretty honest back in September. I put a Facebook status up and just said, What's the greatest song ever written? Which, you know, like to, to my world and hundreds of things came onto the Facebook page and someone said magic power. And obviously I know this song. I used to sing it with Gary Sest at Dundalk High on the guitar. You know, we had a good time. I had that vocal range back in the day. <laughs> uh, nice. Not your range, bro. But, you know, but it was a fun <laughs> one to try, you know, because if you could sing that, you could sing any. You could sing the phone book if you could sing Magic Power. So I I, I literally put a, a, a set list together one morning and I was showering four in the morning, away from my wife, cranking up music in the bathroom, as we all do. And I listened to your song and I thought, wow, you know, like. I'll, I'll vote that that's on the list. I don't, you know, I don't know. And then you, I guess the world, because you pop up on Facebook. And if I say your name now, everything that comes on YouTube, the next six months is going to be a video of you at the Towson center or whatever. But the, the, the movie that was made uh, and the documentary came to me by accident. It was just Saturday afternoon. I popped on axis and I started watching it. And I guess six months later I found you and here we are. And you wrote a book, but 
the story of your band for me, even as a fan of your band and I have ticket stubs, I'll show you from back, you know, back in the day and loving your band. I don't know that you just disappeared, you know, like in a, in a way that, and then you started showing up at Ram's head with an acoustic guitar and lots of my friends went down to see you play. I'm such an idiot for never coming down and seeing you do that. Although I, I play around on YouTube and watch your acoustic versions of that, but you're, that the end of your band was a mystery to a lot of fans, especially maybe not in Toronto, but outside of that, it's like, what, what happened? What? And I think 40 years later in your book, you try to paint a picture of all that, but the movie also, and the reunion you guys did at Metalworks a number of years ago now, um, sort of put a little bit of a bow on that for fans to finally let them in a little bit, because I don't know that it was popular knowledge about how uncomfortable the band was to be in. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's ancient history, but when we lived it, it didn't feel like it was some sort of a strange, vanishing, disappearing act at the time. It just felt like, well, this is the natural course of events. And, and I think in order to frame it properly, you know, for your uh, viewers here, it, 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 you have to understand that, you know, Triumph was a band that we'd done very well in terms of uh, album radio. And um, we were an album kind of act. And uh, so the rise of a world where, you know, Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and these people were making uh, album rock and, and then radio in the States gravitated towards it. We came in, but we were only a band that was like, we were on RCA originally, which was, I think, the sixth of the seven major labels. And then we fought them in a lawsuit. And then we ended up at MCA, which was the... Uh, you know, they it, it turned into Universal, which ended up taking over the whole world. But at the time, MCA was like one. I, I mean, Elton John was signed to them and he called it the Music Cemetery of America. It was, you know, they, they didn't have a lot of clout in, in the in, in the whole music business, per se. So Skinner you know, pooped on him, right? Wrote a song working on the work for the MCA, literally. Right. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So so there, there was that thing of, um, you know. We were never playing in that league where Sticks was going, you know, six or seven times platinum and Journey was going eight or nine or ten times platinum. And and even, you know, Rush all over the world is selling, you know, quadruple platinum, whatever. Like, we would struggle to kind of go gold. And then if we hung around long enough and worked really hard and toured along, okay, we could maybe get to platinum. But, which we did with MCA a couple of times. But um, it was... So we were on the radar, but we weren't like, you know, you know, pushing boundaries and making amazing things happen. And then the band had gotten to the point where, well, as I said in the book, it was just it had it had run its course for me. And I wanted to do other things. You know, I I, I mean, we started our conversation. You're talking about baseball. My life was always one of of um, having a kind of an eclectic approach like, the, you know, as I just wrote, I'm working on a new book, uh, which is about playing the Telecaster guitar. And it's where I started and where I've come back to. And it's called 10 Telecaster Tales. And one of the things they talk about is this um, uh, eclectic journey, you know, of of um, always wanting to do something where in triumph, I would be the guy that would put on these guitar pieces and it would give the band a kind of a very thin veneer of being a progressive actor. We weren't really a progressive act, you know. Uh, I was writing pop songs that I was trying to get on album radio. And Mike and Gil both, I, I think they felt like they just wanted to have a heavy band. They wanted to have a band like, 
you know, Metallica or, 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 uh, you know, I mean, when we played the US Festival, there was like Motley Crue and Scorpions. And I think Gil and Mike were going, yeah, this is, this is the kind of band, you know, uh, we want that they wanted Triumph to be. But the songs that I wrote, like Magic Power, you were talking about, it's not really a heavy metal kind of a song. It's, it's about something else, you know, it's about what, what radio did for me when I was a kid and, and what radio does. Oh, here's a, here's a big thing about that tune. The lyric I wrote, it talks about she climbs into bed and she pulls the covers of her head. So there's a she in the song. And we started to get women finally buying tickets and coming to see our shows to which Mike and Gil were like, you know, astounded. And I was going, no, who do you think listens to radio most of the time? It's not, it's not just guys in the warehouse. It's, it's women in the, they're around the house and they're doing their their housekeeping and they're looking after the kids and they got the radio going and so this song is a song that speaks to everybody it doesn't just speak to you know guys in black t-shirts you know anyhow so that was the that kind of that sold the the kinds of divisions that were within the band and eventually that's the kind of stuff that breaks it apart you know rick emmett is here from triumph the book is laid on the line um you know, you love the music in the band, get the story behind it. Um, I dove into the band side of this right before we spoke to just get fresh on um, the power struggle, which was very obvious from the movie uh, and the film and just clearly three very different human beings. I mean, I think I'm 55 now and I think about my two or three best friends in 1984 and whether I could be in a business with them and whether it would have grown in the same direction with families and um, which is really a tribute to Rush and U2 and the handful of bands that have managed to keep members together for a lifetime. Uh, I think it's difficult to do, but you were self-managed and um, and I think very clear from Gil and his family and the business side. And I used to interview uh, Mike all the time because he was the spokesperson. And when the music critic at the Baltimore Sun would call in 1989, we'd get Mike. Um, and I think the business side of that and being self-managed and I'm fiercely independent. I think it's part of a Canadian tradition of being fiercely independent that maybe that didn't serve you as well either in that Irving Azoff came in later on, but, but the notion that you were going to, it was you against the world. That probably was a really difficult in any era to do Pearl jams, tried it and fought the man and like all that, but it's, that's a very difficult thing. Cause I'm that guy that's fought with the baseball team here for 30 years. It's, it's very difficult to push against the wind. And you guys were fundamentally like that managed like that by Gill and, and, and your partnership, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was an independent-minded kind of operation for sure. And I've said this in in the memoir. You know, when I hooked up with Gil and Mike, I found them to be two of the smartest musicians that I'd ever encountered. Um, and in the end, they weren't really. They didn't really think like musicians. You know, they Gil thought more like a a business operating kind of guy. And and uh, was very good with money, accounting and bookkeeping and all of those kinds of things. His dad had been in that end of the business. And um, Mike was very much marketing and promotion. And and so those skills for a band, those are really important. And and, and they, they can do a lot of good for, for a band, especially as, from its inception as it, as it grows. You get to a certain point in this business, though, and... Um, I say this business as if I'm still really in it, <laughs> you know, um, but you, you, you rise to a certain point. You, you have to have champions, you know, like um, as you've met with frustrations there in Baltimore about team ownership. And now, you know, oh, you think you're going to get over the top now because you got some new ownership happening. Like 
there is a top-down thing that happens. You need champions in higher positions to make things happen. Like in the years when Triumph did have a lot of success, it was because Mike really knew how to get uh, the promotion divisions of record companies to do their job and and to to you know to go to bat for you and and go to the wall for you. You know, um, get record companies to spend that extra promotion marketing budget. Parent, you know, make the act be a priority. And you have to have that. You need to have a record company president that believes in you. You know, now in the case of Irving, I think he did believe in the band, you know, on, on a certain way. But Irving was a guy that he functioned at so many levels. I mean, did you see that in the news recently? He's got some sort of a thing now and he's buying up. He bought Rod Stewart's catalog of masters and publishing. And it's like, I don't know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And Irving was always a guy that could play at a game that was just so far above where we were at because he's, he's, he was running MCA records, but he was still managing the Eagles. And he'd be still, you know, he probably would be a full time job for most people just doing the Eagles, right? Exactly. And there, there were no personalities in that band or anything. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. So, anyhow, I mean, that's the story of, of, uh, so many bands, you you rise to a certain point and it's like that Peter Principle thing where eventually it's going to come apart because um, it, you're you're reaching your level of th this is as far as you can go before, it, you know, the, the cracks are going to start to show. And it, some bands, you know, they manage like as you mentioned, Russian and, and um, U2. I do think that there's a vision from within the band. You talked about independent mindedness. And I do think that in the case of, say, U2, you've got a couple of principles in there, you know, Bono and, and, and The Edge, and they have this partnership where they go, look, no matter what happens, this is how we're going to try to make our business work. And I think uh, Keith Richards and Mick Jagger, same kind of a thing. You know, they go, okay, if we're, we go off on our own and do our own things, that's fine. But there is this thing that we do together, and it's going to be this band. And I think Rush had that, you know, for sure. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think Led Zeppelin had that. And then when Bonham passed away, it was kind of like, you know what? We're not going to touch this sacred thing that we kind of had. And and I think Zeppelin might have been one of the first bands that went, no, no, we're going to have our own label. We're going to have Swan Song. And we're, gonna, we're only going to lease the masters to the major label. We're not going to sign the, the conventional record contract where the record company's going to own the masters, you know? And once they did that, then everybody went, Oh, that's how you play the game. Oh, okay. I thought only the Beatles could get away with that, you know, but then everybody went, no, no, once you rise to a certain point, that's the way you play it. That's how you want to negotiate it anyway. Rick Emmett is here. Oh, the book is laid on the line. Why the book? I mean, you had done poetry. You've been teaching. I mean, and I like, I would say prolific writer. I mean, just, blogging and just in general once a writer always a writer and i'm guilty as well where like the only way you can sort of make sense of things and and organize things in your mind is to write it down and and get it out but this has been a long time coming right for for you to write a memoir and it's um it's really a book of observations more than anything else uh, as it goes along sort of stream of consciousness but observations and sort of the perspective of how you feel about it 30 years later yeah, I mean, you know, you do a memoir, you kind of have this thing where you, I'm, I'm thinking in the back of my mind, well, I only want to do this once. <laughs> you know, like I'm not going to do a series of memoirs. I'm only going to do it once. And so I kind of want to get it right. 
But the fact that I waited such a long time, part of it was because I was always prioritized. Like, well, as you mentioned, my life is, it was complicated. I, I did a lot of things. My family was was important to me and, and there was all of that. We had four kids and and the, the music was always then the next thing. So I had family and then I had music. And then I went, well, yeah, I, I, I want to write. Well, I'll do that later. You know, that, that'll, that, I'm going to focus on these. Other, I was still touring a lot and playing gigs like out every weekend. We talked about the Ramset. Like, I loved coming down and playing that gig. That was a really cool little place to get to play. You know, it was um, it was civilized. And then me and another guitar player would just get up there and I could be so self-indulgent, tell stories and play guitar pieces and do cover songs if I wanted. And and, and I would tour around and, and uh, do that on weekends. So I kept doing that because it was there for me. And I thought, I'll write the memoir, you know, later. One of the big uh, catalysts for, for writing the memoir was that Triumph did the documentary. And then I, and after it, I went, well, that's Triumph's story, but it's not really mine. My story is going to be more complex than that. Mine's going to talk about what I did after I left him. I made more records after I left the band than I did when I was in it. I had a, a very uh, a lengthy, independent kind of career as an indie artist. Uh, and I taught. You mentioned that, the school thing. So I had other priorities. I was like, well, okay, now when I write the memoir, I'm going to have to cover all of these other things. Man, and I don't want to write a memoir that's, you know, 550 pages long. <laughs> like, you know, I was able to make the deal with ECW by going, look, please publish this book of poetry. I know, you know, nobody sells books of poetry. I know there's no money to be made. But I promise you, I'll give you a memoir, too. And they went, oh, a memoir, too. Okay, so let's do a two-book deal. I go, okay, great. So I knew that the memoir was now on the horizon, and I would have to organize my thinking in, in order to, to get it done. But as you say, it bounces around. There's stuff there that you can clearly tell. Well, he was a college teacher for 20 years. I'm getting a lot of you know, syllabus here. <laughs> I've had some friends go, Rick, you sure like, you know, three and four and five syllable words. I got to get the dictionary out to reread in your book. And I go, well, I'm an academic, you know, I'm more of an academic and a philosopher than I am really a, you know, a, a rock star. <laughs> you know, so. Well, I think that's apparent. Right. And I think all these years later that um, and I and I should ask you this, and I, I maybe I didn't get far enough in the book to to figure all this out, but to hear you say it, you were really unhappy in in a band where and as an artist and the debt service and the business side of busting up with lawyers and the the fighting that went on behind the scenes just to get the band heard and and but the indie life for you once you got out and sorted it out, you've had obviously challenges, your brother passing and other things that you've written about, but. Was it a happier life being independent and, and doing all of those albums on your own, even though it wasn't big stages and big money and big travel and all of that? Did you live a happier life because of finally, and it took you years to say, I don't want to be on the front of a, of a three-man band anymore? Yes. Yeah, you know, the short answer to your question is yes. And a longer answer is this. I was listening to Smartless the other day, and they were talking to Lars Ulrich of Metallica. And he was talking about, you know, when you have success in a band, you have this thing that's going to just eat up all your time. And they would have band meetings and they'd be sitting around and going, OK, well, you know, I realize you'd like to block out this Memorial Day weekend 
because it's your kid's birthday. But, you know, we have to go and play this gig in, you know, wherever, you know. And um, it becomes this thing as people get older and they have their own families and they have their own lives in, inside a band. It's something you don't want to have to compromise about is because you're becoming more of an adult. It's not like you're, you know, these these uh, sort of overgrown teenagers that went, we had we put a band together and we're making money and it, this is great. It's great success. And, you know, in Lars case, he's going, all we ever were thinking about was playing the gigs and then getting high, you know, <laughs> getting hammered like that was really that was that those were the priorities, you know, and then but. Life is, it works the way that it works. Now, I was always somebody that had, I was interested in sports and I was interested in reading and I was interested in uh, it, teaching and writing. Like, you know, one of the great things that happened to me when Triumphs first started to become successful was Guitar Player Magazine said, hey, you want to write a column for us? You know, so every month I had to come up with a column. It's not a crazy, huge uh, thing, uh, you know, responsibility and, and uh, time consuming kind of thing. But in my case, I go, well, I want to write one that'll be a really good column. And I want to make sure that, uh, you know, and then I got into a three years later, they're sending me, Tom Wheeler would send me a, a little note and say, Rick, I just want you to know, you know, when we do uh, surveys, your column is always the favorite uh, of readers column. And so the fact that I was conscientious about it, it made it so that it had a value that extended beyond the fact that I was just, you know, my name was there on a masthead, uh, you know, once a month. But it also made it so that, you know, oh, Rick Emmett, oh, the guy from Triumph. Oh, wait, the guy that writes for Guitar Player Magazine, right? And so, like, Yamaha goes, hey, would you like to have an endorsement deal? And we'll give you carte blanche. Like, you can design your own guitars. You can, I mean, you can see I have a fetish. You, know, you have a and, collection there. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, know Getty got yeah. rid of all of his baseball stuff. And, you know, I, I often wonder that they're big. I mean, if you collect baseballs, they're this big. Guitars are huge. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole storage yeah. thing you have going on there. You and Rick Nielsen. Yeah. Well, <laughs> he, he's got it way worse than I did. And I know Alex pretty good. And Lifeson, he had him. He had a bunch like he had, I would say. Five times as many as I do. I'm I'm down to about fifty now, fifty-five, something like that. So Paul um, Reed Smith's here in Maryland, right? So um, he, making these guitars, and Alex, and just all of you guitar geeks come in and have the master make guitars here, right? Yes, yeah, and and he is like his guitars are phenomenal. But I mean, you know, I'm I'm sort of old school, right? I'm a, I've had endorsement deals at Yamaha, Godin. Um, you know, um, I had a Gibson relationship from about 2007 to 2012 and got some nice Les Pauls. And a, there's a double neck over there. And um, which, by the way, Lyson calls his one the fat bastard. And I, I just call mine the chiropractor's best friend. You know, all those years of playing those double necks, man, I was ruining my neck and my back. But um but man, they looked pretty good on stage, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it looked good, man. It looked like two necks were better. Nielsen That's would get it. six or seven going there. But uh, Rick Emmett is here from Triumph. Yeah. The book is laid on the line. So the book and and putting it together. Um, you're a writer. You're an academic. All that easy or hard once it came to the editing process to sort of pare down what you're trying to convey to people who love you and have loved your music and the gal that put magic power up. She might not have the book and might want it. What what were you trying to do in this? 
Um, I was trying to uh, fit way too much into too small a space. So that's and when your first question was, is it hard? Yes, it was hard. It was really hard to do. When when I first started, I have a, I've had a blog, you know, a forum on my website for members for, I don't know, you know, 15, 20 years. And so I said to my webmistress, hey, can you put all of my posts that I've written all in one file and send it to me? And it was well over 5,000 single-spaced pages of stuff. So the, 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 the editing was the hardest thing at the beginning. So you had already written most of this. It just had never been put into one place, kind of sort of buffed up. Man, not well. I wouldn't say written uh, most of this. I would say written probably a good half of it because, of course, those folks that were on my forum—they're my best fans—and they would ask these questions like, "Hey, Rick, do you remember when you played Towson and, and you know, blah blah blah? Do you remember this? Do you remember that?" And so the stories would have been there, and so I would go through and clean it out and go, "Okay, this is a story that has to be told," you know. Um, and, oh, this is the story that the Triumph documentary told, but they didn't tell my side of it. Now, that was the rewriting. So there were things where I was going, okay, I don't have to tell this. This has been beat to death. But this is the side that I need to, you know, show folks. And then there was the whole thing of I want people to know who, uh, you know, Richard Gordon Emmett was, is, and, you know, hopefully will be for the next you know, a couple of decades, you know, God willing. So there, there's a there's a side of that when you're writing a memoir where you're you're writing it. And now, of course, I'm going around and doing all these interviews and stuff. And uh, and the book, by the way, it, it's doing well, which is that's nice. It's a great thing. And the publicist goes, hey, you want to keep doing interviews? I go, yeah, sure. OK, well, you know, we'll keep doing this. Um, but when you're doing them, a memoir is something where you're, you're talking about the past a lot. So. And then everybody's asking you about your past. And then you feel like you're like at your own wake. <laughs> you know, and like you go, wait, wait. And it's the Monty Python joke, right? And I'm not dead yet, you know. <laughs> like, and I'm not, you know, that's part of it. So there, there's a thing that you're trying to do with a memoir where you're trying to incorporate the sort of the currency and the vitality of who you still are into this history of who you were. You know, so that whole past, present, future thing is at play. And it's a remarkable thing from a sort of a psychological therapeutic point of view, because, you know, you don't want to be living too much in the past. There's way too much regret there. You know, uh, you, you like to be in the present because this is where this is the only thing you're guaranteed. You know, the future, you go, well. I'm not guaranteed that, but I hope what I'm doing today, I hope the things that I do today, it's like, why would I want to go to spring training? Well, because the, you know, that's prep for the future and it's, it's necessary. If you want the future to be something that you really, really want, you've got to, the present has to be about the future. So writing a memoir is kind of that kind of a thing for me. I don't know if it's for everybody, but that's what it was like for me. Well, I mean, Getty Lee wrote this book last year and he did the tour and I went to a couple of dates and it was kind of fun on stage. But telling these stories and I'm thinking to myself, this is so out of I've been a Rush fan for 40 years. Just hearing Getty and seeing him cry and get emotional. He said he was all cried out by the time he had done a dozen dates. But 
part of writing the book and doing these things is re- is retelling these stories and having some clown in Towson, Maryland say, hey, Rick, uh, do you remember that the 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 the, uh, the Towson Center show? I'm sharing the ticket now or what's left of it from February 21st, 1982. There is what's left of my ticket. It had some sort of scotch tape on it. I don't know what it was. What? Do you remember gigs individually or was there too much screech and too much in and out? But that night was captured. That night was captured for everyone. I had become a Saxon fan because I was a Rush fan. Your music was on the radio, 98 Rock, all that. So I wanted to see your band. But that was a it was a cold, snowy night. I remember it's February 21st, cold as hell in that little Towson Center, which is still there. Um, And there were video cameras like rolling. And I had never seen those kind of cameras in 1981 82 they brought the same stuff they brought to the summit for journey it is you know in the midnight on saturday night they were going to debut triumph at the tosin's they didn't pronounce it right towson center in maryland what do you remember rick uh well i just remember the pressure of it because of course it was mtv and that you know that was the catalyst for it and everybody was trying to cozy up to mtv at the time that was that was now the new way to break records. And so record companies were trying to get in there. And I think Triumph might have been, I think Prince had had already done a live thing for them. And I think the Triumph one was literally the second one that they ever did uh, of live concerts, which of course it was going to turn into a standard kind of thing that they did all the time. But <clears throat> I, I don't know. I remember not just that one, but other kinds of ones where the cameras were there or, you know, the the, Mo- the Westwood mobile truck was there and this was going to get recorded and this was going to turn into, you know, live concerts on the radio. And thinking, OK, so, you know, you, you have to be good. Like uh, you, you can't mess this up because this is going to, you know, uh, exist for posterity. So for me, particularly, it was a question of don't run around too much on stage like because sometimes I would just go crazy and and be jumping around and do you know um but if I did then my vocals would suffer as the set went on my pitch would get worse and worse whereas if I relaxed and took it easy and didn't go at it too hard and didn't run around too much by the time we got to magic power near the end of the night or you know whatever was going to be the end song fight the good fight there was a lot of songs where I had to sing awfully high you know, and I needed a chance to rest before I could, you know, tackle that because I wasn't like a singer that was just standing in the middle of the stage, you know, doing my thing with my feet planted. Um, you know, I was not a Paul Rogers kind of a guy. I was I had a guitar and your three piece band. Somebody's got to front that thing and you, you got to move around, you know. Um, so I remember that. I remember telling myself like, eh. You know, don't run around too much, you idiot. Like, you know, yeah. Did you like it? I mean, because it it played a lot. Were you happy with it? Uh, No. Oh, oh, I hate to hear that 40 years later. Don't break my heart, Rick. (laughs) Well, but I mean, part of that is uh, I think there's a side of every artist where when you listen to your sub back you go or you you see a video or you go oh i could have done that better oh i could oh oh geez that's a little flat or oh man i look weird from that angle like you're you're self-critical in a way that even your worst critic is not going to see the things that you see about yourself or feel about yourself and um i was never the delusional kind of artist 
that loved, oh, I love listening to my old records. Oh, I love looking at pictures of me. Oh, I love watching videos of me. And I go, what kind of a problem have you got? Like, that's, you know, I'm not interested in that. You know, I'm more interested in what has somebody else got to offer that I might be able to then incorporate into my own process? You know, what can I learn from? Uh, I've always felt like I was kind of a student for life. And I don't think rock stars are necessarily, well, they come in all shapes and sizes. You know, I think a guy like David Bowie was probably a rock star that he was very much an artist and he wasn't necessarily that concerned about looking at those pictures of him. He, he created those images and those videos and those things. And then he would move on to something else, you know, because that's what he was doing was he was searching, you know? Um, so the guys that are, you know, uh, enamored of their own, <laughs> their own videos or their own images or their own recordings, I go, I don't know, buddy. I think you got some screws loose. Like, it doesn't seem healthy to me, you know. But uh, who's to say what healthy is? That's humble Canadianness as well, though, too, right? A little bit. I th yeah, I think so. That modesty, yes. I mean, and I think Canadians do have it a little bit more than Americans. But uh, you know, I'm not putting Americans down. the The way I always describe that one is, you know, in Canada. If you're not modest and you're not sort of practical and you don't put on your mittens or your scarf, you'll fucking you'll freeze to death, you know, six months of the year. Whereas in Texas and Virginia and, you know, Florida, man, you can be dead drunk, lying in a gutter all night long. And you're not you'll be, you'll wake up in the morning and go, oh, geez, OK, don't try that on get... Young Street. <laughs> no, exactly. Right. You know? So and I think that they're, they're, the other thing, too, is a. Americans really have a very strong sense of, um, and this is national identity, that up by your own bootstraps, you know, uh, ind individuality, like uh, I'm strong, I'm great, you know, uh, don't screw with my rights. Whereas Canadians go, geez, I'm sorry, can, can I be of service? Can I help you somehow? Like, can we cooperate? Hey, can I lend you something to, to help you out? Because if you didn't cooperate in Canada, again, you were going to freeze to death. So. <laughs> You know, <laughs> that's your theory. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Rick Emmett is here. Lay it on the line is a book, uh, Backstage Pass to Rockstar Adventure, Conflict. It has to have that to be a story and triumph and a, a great picture of uh, what's that? Allied Forces era there. That's a that's a young Rick Emmett on that cover, huh? That's just a game. That was just 1979 game, right? at the Ottawa Civic Center. And uh, we were still playing sort of either uh, sized down buildings or, you know, the largest theater in town. Uh, but that was from the Ottawa Civic Center. Yeah. You're you can teaching. Tell, I'm sorry. Sorry. It's the jumpsuit. You can tell. It's uh, the, the Ackerman guitar. It still didn't have the, it's still got its rotary switch in the top. I hadn't switched that out yet. So it's easy for me to be able to look at a picture like that and go, oh yeah, 1979. Yeah. It's a period piece. There's the front and then there's the back. Um, yeah, you've, I knew you were teaching and, you know, I'm not keeping up with every word you're writing or any rock star. Quite frankly, I love your music. I listened to Hold On this morning. I, I think that's my favorite, although Fight the Good Fight was my original favorite. Um, and I, I think of your academic side and the teaching side of where life took you in that way when you were coming down here and playing on weekends at Ramshead. Tell me about life as a teacher. Is that something that when you were in conflict with the band in the 80s that you thought that's something I would do? Because so many uh, artists 
Billy Joel. I mean, I'm thinking all these people that wanted to be teachers or put themselves into some sort of, even if they're doing a, a podcast or they're trying to educate people, but you really took it on as you were a real teacher in a real university for a long, long time, right? Yeah. And I mean, you know, I think it was in my nature. I mean, uh, I've got four kids and three of them are teachers. You know, wow. so, you know, um, so I think it's in the DNA and I think there would be people that would look at my body of work and especially those triumph songs that you mentioned and they would go, you know, there's a little kind of a didactic, pedantic kind of quality to these songs that he writes. It's like, he's kind of in a, in a, in a pulpit and he's preaching a little bit, you know? And I think it was one of the things, honestly, that the other guys in triumph kind of went, Oh, geez, Rick. Not another one of these, you know, like people had to live their life, right? Literally, right? Yeah. Well, the thing was, like, um, I, when I joined the band, they'd already picked out this name. They'd already it was already was already called Triumph, and they had all of this uh, promotional material that it had nothing to do with a band that was called Triumph. It showed devil's heads and fire, and and I'm going, what is this? And they go, well, there was another band called Hellfire, and we just decided to use that imagery. And, but, and I go, but you're calling the band Triumph. And it took me a while, but you mentioned the song, Hold On. I think that was when I sort of figured out, hey, you can marry the music to the name, to what you to what it is that you do up on stage, where the band was kind of be going like, hey, instead of going, hey, let's party like it's, you know, like we're there's no tomorrow. Let, let's, let, let's have that sex and drugs and rock and roll thing. And I think Gil kind of felt like that's the kind of band he might he might have wanted to have like a a band that had songs like kiss you know and i was going no it's called triumph and you, you know these folks that are out in the seats they're in high school and they're they're struggling they're having a hard time you know they're trying to find their own identities and they let's offer them something which helps them to feel good about themselves so songs like magic power and hold on and fight the good fight and you know uh I could go on and on, but I would only be going into the B cuts and the C cuts. Well, somebody's <laughs> out there. I mean, from a hit standpoint to say there's hope, there's an aspirational part to almost everything you've ever written. And I think 40 years later, the grown up version of Rick, it, it's amazing to me at 22 for anyone like you who was gifted enough to write something that 40 years later I listened to and say, man, I didn't even understand what they were writing about when I was 15 and singing the words. But this is some deep shit. Yeah. And, and and for a 21-year-old to write that and still be singing it 40 years later and for it to be aspirational, aspirational and hope, that's that lasts a lifetime. That is universal, right? And, and, and that was the kind of stuff that I was reaching for. And so back to your question about being a teacher, I think that's what motivates teachers. They're, they're trying to help other people find the best parts of themselves and and take advantage of those things like like work on them and and work them up and work them out and so that there's like that work ethic kind of thing is in there you know and um yeah i mean like it's not like you want to be banging people over the head with it and it, you you do want to offer people recreation in the true sense of the word that they recreate themselves through the work because they find something of a value in it that that makes them feel better and 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 feel good about life you know so i was always pushing for that that's a very teacherly kind of thing and then once i got in there and i was doing it i think i'm probably going to sound like every other teacher that's talking about after they've retired like there are kids that are there that are they're going to burn you out like they're just they're 
you know, and I would say to them sometimes, like, you've paid money to be in this course. Well, like, why are you not doing the work that, you know, is required? And they're going, well, you know, I'm not sure that I want to be here. I go, well, I, I don't get that. You know, I honestly, I, I don't understand. And there would be other students that they would make your day. They would make your life. You know, you would have, and I'll tell you a quick little story because anecdotes are the best way to do these things, especially in these podcasts. Well, so I, I, I love long form. I used to take phone calls for a living. No, you have two minute songs. Uh, tell me, teach right. me something, Rick Emmett. Okay. So I, I got a guy in my class and he's a guitar player and he's not a very good one in the cohort. Like if, if there's say 40, not even, there's probably only about uh, 20 guitar players left by the time they get to third year, fourth year. And um, he's probably, you know, number 18 on the list. Right. And he knows it. And I know it. And he, they're supposed to be doing marketing plans, business plans for me as part of the music business course that I'm teaching. This was early on um, in, in my teaching thing. So he says to me, Look, Rick, I, I want to talk to you about my, my and my marketing plan. He goes, uh, this guitar, I, just, I'm, I, I don't know what to do. And I don't think guitar is the thing. I go, well, you know, I don't want to sound nasty or cruel, but I agree with you. So what do you think? And he goes, well, I've been going out to the park on the weekends and I've been practicing bagpipes. And I go, bagpipes, you say? <laughs> you know? And he goes, yeah. He goes, it's a horrible racket. It, you know, and I'm I'm not great at it, but I'm getting better at it. And he goes, but I'm thinking I might want to do a business plan about, uh, you know, playing bagpipes for a living. And I go, okay, tell me more. Now let's, let's extrapolate this. Like, you know, let me hear what you're thinking about. He goes, well, he goes, you know, here in Canada, there's a lot of Scottish Presbyterian churches and they have funerals and they have weddings and, you know, they would need bagpipe players. And, I, and he goes, so I'm thinking I'd do a mailing list and I would do the, the Presbyterian churches. I go, well, that's very good that, you, you know, that's solid. He goes, okay. Uh, I was at a hockey banquet, you know, a month ago and they had a bagpiper guy bagpipe in the, 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 the front table, the, the, all the guests and stuff. And he goes, so I'm thinking, you know, I could do that special events that, of a Scottish nature or, you know, I go, all right, this is sounding solid to me. This is a good idea. And you're thinking along the right lines. So go ahead, do your business plan. So he does the business plan. And in the end, it's, it's good. It's really solid. Like whether or not he's going to be a bagpipe guy, you know, this mismarketing plan, this business plan, it's a smart one. He, you know, he's figured out about, and if I get a bank loan of this amount and I make, and I'm earning this kind of money, I'll be able to pay the bank back, blah, 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 just all the shit. So months, go, years go by and I get an email one day and it's from this guy and he goes, Rick, I don't know if you remember me, blah, 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 I was in your class and I did my business plan of a bagpipe. He goes, look, I'm not a bagpiper. He goes, uh, I, I ended up, he said, uh, I all I just took what you taught me about how to think. And I put together a business plan. He goes, I now run three bush planes and two helicopters in and out of the Northwest Territories in the Yukon. And I do medical supplies and I do blah, 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 blah. And, and he goes, and, you know, I got a really great business and I have you to thank for it because you taught. Me. And I go, OK, could a teacher ever hope for anything better than an email like that? You know, it's like. You made my day, you made my week, you made my year. And it only takes one. Like you can have 50 failures, but if you have the one win, you go, I'll take it. Thank you very much.
So when I walk up to you and say, I love your song, it's meant so much to me, Fight the Good Fight got me through tough times in my life, like, <laughs> that, that, that doesn't weigh as much as teaching to some degree, that adulation that you always felt from girls, from boys, from, you know, all you, I mean, I've got your autograph on, a, on an album that you drew in silver and did a guitar neck, and I thought, this is an artistic guy, this Rick Emmett fellow, but, but there is something about the pragmatic part of changing someone's life in that way as a teacher maybe it means more to you than a song yeah i mean you know you mentioned adulation like i never did it because i was wanting to um well i, I shouldn't say that i mean of course everybody wants to get somebody else's approval and oh they like me oh that's great you know but i was doing it because I was interested in the process. I was interested in doing this creative thing that would then have some sort of benefit or value in the final analysis that other folks would go, yeah, this isn't just a, a, a great piece of music. This is a great piece of music that made me think, or this is a great piece of music that helped me understand how to feel about certain things or like, it, all, it was always, I didn't want just the music. I wanted some sort of substance, you know, some sort of an integrity that existed in what it was that I was doing. And, you know, you've mentioned these bands that have lasted, you know, and you mentioned U2 and Rush. And I think both of those acts are acts that went, no, no, there's an integrity that we do here. That's what we do. There's something of something substantial that we must offer that goes beyond the, you know, the shallow, kind of hey you bought a ticket i'm gonna show you a good time for the next hour and a half like yes there's that there's no question that that's part of it but it's like what will you take away and i used to tell this to my students all the time offer people something that money can't buy that's what you offer people in the work that you do something that money can't buy which of course that's the mastercard you know oh this is priceless yeah and but that's the truth of it like if you really want to do something that's going to matter and that's going to have value that lasts, you got to, you got to, you got to build it in there. Spoken like the man who wrote music holds the secret to know it can make you whole. So um, last couple things for you, because our time is a short, Wait, been incredible. Go ahead. Just, because th what you just said was a poem that I wrote in grade 12. That was in high school. That, that lyric. Music holds a secret to know it can make you whole. It's not just a game of notes. It's the sounds inside your soul. That was a poem that I wrote in high school. So, you know, I'm not exactly a 23-year-old Joni Mitchell writing both sides now. But I did have a poem that ended up as a pretty decent lyric. But how does that... an 18-year-old write, I sing this song for the common man? For the people in despair. What did you know about the people in despair? Except it was no. old outside in Toronto. Those that part came later. I didn't oh, write okay. that. <laughs> Those were written as a as a guy in 1978 or 79 in a band thinking about being on a stage and going, what do I want to say to those people that are in the seats that are climbing up on the seats when we blow up the flash pots and are standing <laughs> on their the next hour? I go, what do I want to say to them? And I go, well, I write this song for the common man, for, for the people in despair. Like if you're feeling bad, I can make you feel better. I'll offer you something that can make you feel better. And that's building towards a song that's going to go. <laughs> floor on the floor, disco, 
it's going to be hold on to your dreams. Like it's going to feel good. That's where it's headed. Well, Thanks. it's uh, this has been a lot of fun. I am indebted. You talk about things. You this has been priceless. I I couldn't buy a cameo with you that lasted this long. I'm glad you wrote this book, Rick. Um, two last things: the 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 touring and that he's ended his touring and like that. Um, what what do you think about that? Is there is there six weeks in a summer where you would want to come down and just hang out and play at Ramset and do a couple of those things for fun? Because it would be fun for you and not shit, I'm on the road again. I'm in a hotel again. I mean, is there any point where we'll get to see you play? That's a pr pretty common it, question, right? Yeah. And I, you know, I, I am a guy that wrote a song that said never say never. And, and I, you know, I do find it dangerous to, to, uh, you know, take a really big paintbrush and paint in broad strokes. But I should tell you, I've been struggling with some arthritis in my hands and that's changing things. Um, I don't know how much it will. And I'm, you know, I'm, uh, as you alluded to earlier, I've gone through a, a sort of a cancer treatment. Now I'm sort of trying to deal with this uh, advent uh, of rheumatoid arthritis. And I don't know how much it's going to, you know, knock a hole in my ability to. So it's certainly going out on the road and traveling. And, you know, you you just said about, you know, oh, hotels and airports. And that does seem like a grind to me. And I got to admit, my wife has been patiently sitting around for decades waiting for, hey, you know, She's she's going to go to uh, on a, a a safari. She's going to like Kenya and Nairobi and like she she's going to do this this year. Like I'm not going with her. Like that's not my idea. That's not my idea of fun. You know, I go. You'll be at Sky Dome at a ball game when uh, Rogers when you know when the Orioles are in town, right? Literally. And I want. I would like to be in the luxury box. You know. <laughs> <laughs> um, baseball. That, let's end with baseball here, and you're. Um, you still follow? Is still as as big oh. as maybe you ever were? My news feed is full of like I get all the guitar world stuff and blah blah blah, and then I get all the baseball stuff. So yes, I I remain hip to the fact that you know uh, uh, pitchers and catchers reported a couple of days ago. Position players are are there now. Like yeah, I mean, uh, and I. I've gone to spring training a couple of times. Like we went and saw a game once, a Cubs game, in uh, they're out they're over in Arizona. But uh, and of course, my son played at a collegiate level. He was NCAA, NCAA Division One, and so they would go and have spring training down in Florida, and I would go see him play sometimes. He he's now in his thirties, and you know he's got a baby on the way, and he doesn't play baseball that much anymore. He still coaches. That, that's one of the things that he's the one that's not a teacher, but he's still a coach. <laughs> so do, do you play at all? Do, uh, do you, I mean, if do you pick up a guitar and play sometimes in a podcast like this or just play and play triumph stuff for fans once a year? I mean, when's the last time you picked up a guitar and played any of these songs you've been talking about? Cause you don't have an audience for it. Right. Oh no. I played guitar for about two hours yesterday, two and a half oh, hours. Okay. Like, I, I play guitar every day. And if I don't, it's 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 both mentally and physically therapeutic. Like I really should, because if I don't, I start to get grumpy and you know feel bad and and uh, yeah. So no, I play and I I just had this guitar made for me. Like this is the one that I, so I was talking about the new album. Ten, I had it's a Telecaster, but it's got a Les Paul's scale length and pickups and string height, and this only weighs about six and a half pounds. So this is incredibly light and easy to play. So, yeah, I'm no, I'm still, I'm still into it. And 
the answer to your question about gigs and public appearances, like I will go out and get interviewed. I'm doing one in April in uh, in Brampton, Ontario, where a guy interviews me and I, I got a guitar there and he, I'll play a few little things. I might not play, you know, a full song. Uh, I might play just six, but I might, I might play one or two. And I would play Lay It on the Line or Magic Power. And I just, I was over in Sweden on New Year's because uh, I had some friends, blah, 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 playing in a band in a junior rock, world hockey championships. And it was like, hey, Rick, come on over and sing. And we'll do some crime songs. You know, we'll do two or three. So I did a little mini set of Magic Power, Lay It on the Line. And, um, and, uh, it was great. It was fun. Like you know, you're not uh, really retired in your own mind. You're 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 very you're you're just retired from getting on a plane and coming to Annapolis, Maryland, and doing this pretty much. Uh, well, I might do it one as a one-off. I would never do it as I'm going to go to Annapolis and then the next night we're going to play Baltimore and then the next night we're going to play Washington and then the next night like. I would never want to. All right. So again. what I need to do is get like when the Blue Jays are in town, figure out an Oriole thing, call my friends and Laura and those folks are, and say, look, he's here. He's bringing a guitar, pay him and let's get together and like, like enjoy art that we're alive and you're alive and we can share this music. Sounds like a great plan. All right, that's it. I'm going to end it Wait, on that. Uh, after I they buy the meet, book. I want to meet the catcher. <laughs> oh, Rutschman. Oh, you need to meet Rutschman. Okay. All right. Uh, I'll see what he's, I can do my, with that. That's my kind of ball player. I love the fact that at the end of every inning, no matter what, he goes over and as the pitcher's coming off, he goes behind him and he gives him a pat on the ass or a pat on the back and walks him back to the dugout. Like, okay, anything you want to talk about? And I go, that's my kind of guy. That's my kind of player. Who was so your favorite all-time player? That'll tell me my I'm George Brett and Tony Gwynn. Those are my guys forever. I knew Gwynn a lot. Don't know Brett, but Brett was always my guy. Who's your guy? Yeah. Well, I think, I, well, you know, there's a part of me that loves the whole Lou Gehrig thing, you know, that kind of a player that was the humble, modest, you know, um, but modern players. Um, wow. It, it's a tough call. The Jays have got uh, Guerrero's a pretty good hitter. Uh, um, and Bichette is uh, getting better every year. Uh, I expect him to have an amazing year this year. Um but I don't know. I mean, I'm, uh, Baltimore's got a few, man. Like the uh, catcher's good, and um, Henderson's uh, going to be great. We got we got Jackson Holiday. You talk about you mentioned Guerrero and Bichette. Like I re remember their fathers and interviewing their fathers thirty years ago. When we have Jackson Holiday too, Matt Holiday's kid's going to be a superstar here oh, this year. Yeah, for sure. And Mount Castle, who who's the first baseman again? Mel Castle. Well, I mean, we got the shortstop third base, and Gunnar Henderson's probably the name that you've that that you. Yeah, were, yeah, yeah. So many guys that are they're the right kind of ball players, and so on my members forum, there's a lot of talk about baseball all the time. Dude, they're when one I'm, ones. We lost 120 games for five years in a row. This is what you got. I know. <laughs> I was picking Baltimore to do better in the playoffs, and I don't. I don't think they'll 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 do better this year. Uh, but I was picking them. To, to go all the way. I thought they had what it took. And that that you 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 lost your um your relief guy. And that was that was Batista. hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah. signed Kimbrell. They gave Kimbrell a lot of money. Um but the new ownership part here, I mean, if there's anything to, to glean from your book and the breakup of Triumph, it's sort of like who's running the place and how it gets run and everybody's happiness is important. We haven't had a lot of that here. So the 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 uh the, the uh, sunshine that I put over Camden Yards here Rick, it's <laughs> it's the sunshine coming over after lots of dark clouds here in Baltimore. Yeah. 
Rick, right, thank you for your time. And I, I yeah. very respectful. You, you told me, I said, you got 20 minutes. Ah, take an hour. I'm like, I'll take an hour and even make you sing. So I appreciate that, man. Thank you very ah. much. All right. You're welcome. Rick Emmett, the book is Lay It on the Line. Uh, it was just a beautiful conversation. A backstage pass, the rock star adventure, conflict and triumph, and a really good looking young version of Rick. Uh, and then the current good looking modern version of Rick, the teacher. Good luck with the book. I hope to have you at a ball game one day over a cold Labatt's and a proper hot dog. All right. Good, Mister. Thank you. Appreciate you. Rick Emmett joining us here from beautiful Toronto, our neighbors to the north. I'm Nestor. We are WNST AM 1570. Towson, Baltimore. Back for more on WNST and Baltimore Positive right after this.